Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're capping off our season of literary adaptations with a discussion on The Chosen and the Beautiful by Nifo. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. Uh, Let's skip all the, like, cute intro stuff, and I'm just going to tell you I loved this book. Okay, I loved this book, too. Okay. (laughs) Great. It's all out in the open now. As I was reading it, I did think to myself, Sarah's going to love this. (laughs) You did? What what about this book made you think it was going to work for me? I thought, so neither of us is a big fantasy reader. And there are magical fantasy elements in this. But I thought that the way the magic worked and the sort of like dark elements of it, it had that almost like dark campus novel, magical campus novel feel without being a campus novel. I mean, these are young characters. I It just kind of gave me those vibes. But also this is, the writing is sumptuous and literary. And I, I don't know, as I was reading it, I was just like, mm, I I'd had a feeling that we were going to have fun talking about it, but that you would love it as much as I was loving it. I really did. The writing was fantastic. I, I completely agree with those vibes. I don't know if I would have articulated that, but it's so true that that little touch of magic gives that sort of, um, I don't Yeah. Dark, but, but beautiful, tone to the book. And yeah, I I loved this as a book and I loved it as an adaptation. And we're going to get more into why this one worked as an adaptation for us and some culminating thoughts on adaptations after we spent the semester reading and watching and talking about adaptations towards the back half of this episode. But let's get started with discussing this book as as a book um, before we do that. So The Chosen and the Beautiful by Nevo, it's a retelling of The Great Gatsby told from the perspective of Jordan Baker, whose name you will know from The Great Gatsby. She's very much a side character, but an essential character in that book. But Jordan here, while she remains a golfer and um, a part of the wealthy in crowd. She is also Vietnamese and she's queer. And that gives her a completely different perspective than the Jordan Baker that we met in Fitzgerald's original story. Something I loved about Nevo's choice to make Jordan the main character and the narrator here is in The Great Gatsby, it does feel like we are supposed to think that Nick is an outsider. But mm-hmm. is he really? Right. <laughs> Here. He has a small house, Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> Here, we really do get the sense that Jordan, while she somewhat belongs with the crowd, has a completely unique perspective and is treated differently because of her ethnicity and identity. And also, like, 
not everybody necessarily knows that she is queer. A lot of people do, but so we also get that sort of like, she is, we're in her head. So we understand how she sees herself as the outsider among this crowd. And I, I loved the queer representation in this. It felt very authentic to the great Gatsby. I think you can read the great Gatsby and you can pick up on a lot of the subtext from, from that book. Um, so it didn't, I mean, it didn't feel forced in any way in this retelling, but also, so in addition to being a retelling of Gatsby from Jordan's perspective, it's also magical. So a lot of the sort of like industrial and old wealth and glitzy, glamoury aspects from The Great Gatsby that we all loved as teenagers reading it in the high school classroom, those are given a magical little element to it. So instead of, you know, like just everybody's drinking gin, they're drinking demoniac or they're drinking like these very exotic, magical elixirs that they got by, you know, trading from hell's angels or whatever. There's like this, this really interesting, um, like hellish aspect to the magic where, um, you might explain this better than I can, but um, for example, it's implied that, or it's overtly stated that Gatsby sold his soul to the devil, and that's what got him all this wealth. The magic is really fascinating in here. Yeah, I don't know if I have like a term or anything to describe that, but but I thought that was really interesting. That the magic is, yeah, it's it's connected to this world of of demons and the demonic not in a like satanic scary way or anything, but not in a like glamorizing way necessarily either. There's this darkness to it, but in a way that like really works both in and of itself as a fantasy element and as a sort of stand in for capitalism and, and what you have to trade and be willing to sell of yourself to be successful in this world. It was really interesting and I think beautifully done. Yeah. And it doesn't like hit you over the head with that no. at all. I've thought it was really subtle. So I listened to a podcast episode. It was an interview with Nevo and the interviewer asked, you know, how did you come up with this magic system for, for the world? How did you conceptualize this? What does the magic really mean? And Niveau said it was really from looking at advertising in the 1920s. It was thinking about how all of a sudden, you know, people went from having a butcher, baker, grocer, someone, they either made their own clothes or they went somewhere to a tailor to get their clothes made. And now all of a sudden they're looking at catalogs, they're listening to the radio, they are seeing billboards, they're, they're being pummeled with advertising to us as we're scrolling Instagram, as we're getting ads, we're like, oh my goodness, another ad, another ad, another ad. We can recognize what it is for what it is. But back then it probably did feel like magic that all of a sudden you could look at a catalog, you could order something and it would appear. That's magical at that time. And so I thought that was a really fascinating starting point for this magic I was really glad to hear Nevo explain that because I never would have made that connection. I love that. And and that's just one 
type of magic that she works in here. She also has Jordan as a character is a bit of a magician and this and her magic is based in the Vietnamese art of paper cutting and so we get this we get a really lovely and moving scene early on when we get a flashback of Jordan and Daisy as children where Jordan makes this paper lion and then it turns into a real lion and her paper cutting uh, magic skills come back in are in are very important to the plot way later in the book, and we won't spoil that for anyone who hasn't gotten around to reading this yet. But I I loved that there were different types of magic at work here, and I kind of loved that it wasn't over explained. I perhaps if you are more of a high fantasy reader, you want to know all of the rules of the magic, like why Jordan has it, why certain. Ca- I didn't. I didn't need that. It just it made sense to me in the same way that in the Great Gatsby, Daisy's voice is like magic. Whatever it is about it, <laughs> it has sway. And these characters in The Chosen and the Beautiful have magic of their own that allows them to influence the world around them and influences the other characters around them. And it just it just worked for me. Yeah, I really liked it. I am not a big fantasy reader, but I do love a fantasy novel that is grounded in something either real or recognizable. So Real would be like The City We Became by N.K. Jemisin, set in a real place. Feels very much like that setting literally as a character. Um, here, the plot, the inspiration is all recognizable. I've read The Great Gatsby. I know who these characters are. I kind of have a sense of what's going to happen. I love that the magic adds that element of just heightening everything. It felt... I don't know, the the drama of The Great Gatsby in this world, it just felt like it had a, a more, I don't know, it felt like it was in its place here. The, the high drama felt, I don't know, it didn't feel melodramatic like it sometimes does in Fitzgerald. No, it really didn't. Somehow the interpersonal connections, like falling in and out of love, the romantic entanglements, it felt more um, surreal, but also visceral in this book versus that kind of just just drama that it feels like to me in in Gatsby, which is fun in and of itself. But there, there was something more robust to it in this book. And maybe that is partly because we have, we do see different character relationships. Whereas in The Great Gatsby, like we're, it's so focused on Gatsby and Daisy. But here we get Jordan's relationship with Nick. We get more of her relationship with Daisy. We get more backstory to Daisy and Gatsby. We get more overt queering of the relationship between Nick and Gatsby. We, I mean, Tom really doesn't factor in any more than he does in in Fitzgerald's novel, where he's just like yeah. very much background character. He remains very steady. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Daisy and Jordan are the stars of this show. And the some of the implications about their relationship are really, really well done and really interesting. Um, I loved seeing them as children a little bit, and I loved seeing 
the start of both Daisy and Gatsby and Daisy and Tom's relationship through Jordan's perspective and how she um, interpreted Daisy's desires and everything there. I thought that was really, really fascinating. And, you know, this isn't the only book that came out even in the year it came out to explore The Great Gatsby from the perspective of the women. I also read the book Beautiful Little Fools by Jillian Cantor, which alternated perspectives, including Daisy's and Jordan's. And what I what I really loved about The Chosen and the Beautiful, in contrast to to, to that book in particular, is that it was rooting these characters in the original text, but making them also fully their own, but not in a way that you are like, oh, Nevo read The Great Gatsby in a way that was totally different from how I read it. Like she clearly saw who Fitzgerald was making these women to be but the way she enhanced them, they felt so true. You could see how the Nick of her book could end up writing, mm-hmm. you know, telling the story the way The Great Gatsby was. But there was so much more to these women that he couldn't see and couldn't understand. And I just thought she did that so well compared to some other books I've read that have attempted that kind of thing. I just think her writing is spectacular. I think that it's comparable to Fitzgerald's in the sense that the imagery, the descriptions are lush and gorgeous and beautiful. I would even argue like take it further than Fitzgerald's. I know a lot of people love The Great Gatsby for the writing and I just felt totally sucked in by the voice of this, which not just because Jordan is a strong narrator here, she is, but just also the, the glitz and the glamour is like ratcheted up a thousand points. It's lushly descriptive. I, so Nevo weaves a lot of actual like specific phrases from the great Gatsby in here. She uses the actual text, which she's able to do because it's in the public domain now. You would never guess if you had never read the great Gatsby, you would never guess it is seamlessly done. I just, I mean, I want to read more of her work because of how much I enjoyed this and how much I enjoyed just her voice. I completely agree. And I'm really curious what her other writing is like, because I don't feel like she was imitating Fitzgerald in this book, but it it seemed evident that she wanted her Gatsby retelling to be in the style and in the spirit of that type of prose. And she absolutely, I think, like you said, not only nailed it, but perhaps in some areas, even surpassed it. And I was blown away by that. I would be curious if that is her writing style consistently in all of her books, or if she is a, and she's won a Hugo award for another book. So I know that her writing is exceptional in her other work too. I'm, I'm curious if she's a kind of shapeshifter in terms of her prose style, or if this really is her style. It it sounds like Fitzgerald's work was kind of formative to her. I, I listened to an interview with her as well. And she said that she has basically been sitting on this story since she was a sophomore in high school, since she read The Great Gatsby. And she was just 
she was just waiting for it to go into the public domain so she could tell tell this story. And one of the things that she commented on was she she was talked about how Nick was her first unreliable narrator and how you never forget your first, which I think <laughs> is so true. I mean, I think that's really like earth-shattering and mind-expanding for young readers to encounter for the first time an unreliable narrator. And then every book you read from then on becomes this like, oh, whose perspective am I seeing and what's being left out? That was clearly true for for Vo. And so I, I think it's also true that even though even her Jordan is not 100% reliable. Mm. Um, but I love also the little jabs that she she points towards Nick throughout this, like where she talks about she's there's like a little offhanded line about how. Nick was clearly somebody who loves telling other people's stories or <laughs> or just the little things that that Nick misses. Um, it, it really clearly ties back to her own reading experience, first reading experience of this book. Um, I would like to talk a little bit more about the characters. What did you oh, think about Jordan as as narrator and just as a as a character here? Well, I really loved Jordan because I I think that she just, I mean, as we've discussed, she's very much this outsider. And that is, that's very true and that's very important. But it's it's a complicated outsiderness mm-hmm. because she almost feels more comfortable in her role as outsider in this elite white society than she does when she's with people who maybe look like her but didn't grow up in the same way as her. And that description of that liminal space that she occupies, I think, was really profound and powerful. Um, and again, not heavy handed, but just so well depicted. I just thought it was also fun to read such a party girl. She was such a party girl. Yeah. And I loved that too. Like she had fun and she like in terms of sex, like she, she knows what she likes and what she wants. And she has a lot of fun in this book. Yeah. And it's the relationship between her and Daisy felt all the more real for that because we have these kind of contrasting characters of they they did grow up together they're from the same town but they're very different from one another and Daisy is just like such the classic white woman victim in this novel the center of like the world revolves around her she's the center of attention she expects Jordan to just like come when she calls and Jordan does it's there's kind of a journey that Jordan has to go on to recognize the relationship dynamic that they have I thought that that relationship was even more interesting in this book than Daisy and Gatsby oh I completely agree and I I think that that's one another interesting way that this book mirrors but enhances some of the themes of Gatsby is I think in Gatsby to me, the relationship between Nick and Gatsby is the most interesting part, even though the story is ostensibly about something else. And the same was true here for Jordan and and Daisy. And the way we see Daisy through Jordan's eyes, I think, is really powerful. Like, she doesn't um, – I don't know. It, it, it's not a rehabilitation of – 
Fitzgerald's Daisy, but it is a more nuanced picture of of her. Um, although even I, I at the same time, some of those things that you detest about Daisy in The Great Gatsby are really remain true in The Chosen and the Beautiful, even in some of the scenes where they're children, which I thought was was really, really cool. This is gonna get a little little bit spoilery. So heads up, listeners. I will will mark um timestamps in the show notes for you. I loved how Nevo decided, okay, all of the sort of scholarly resources, all of the readings that say this, I'm going to take that and run with it. So for example, I mean, so this is not new scholarship at all. So many people read the relationship between Gatsby and Nick as a queer one, first and foremost. So there's that, there's that, um, I thought it was really interesting that Nebo decided to lean into Gatsby being half black mm-hmm. and able to pass as white. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, I think it was in 2017 that um, someone released a, a book on the topic, sort of like analyzing the great Gatsby through that lens. It worked really well here. It adds an element, um, especially I think, because Jordan was already sort of like exploring the nature of her identity in these spaces, how she moves from one space to another. Um, and she was able to kind of recognize it in him first. Yeah. Um, all of the conversations that Tom is constantly bringing up about race make a little bit, I mean, it makes sense for the time, but also like just make a little bit more sense in their inclusion and their, his like targeting of Gatsby when we know, okay, this is Gatsby's background. Um, just a really, like, I just, I like how she just leans into these things that are like, you can read this in The Great Gatsby, but she's really making things clearer, more overt. Um, and that's not to say that she like says those things from the beginning. I think there are like reveals throughout the the novel still, but I really liked how she just like was like, yeah, we're going for it. We're, we're going to go all the way with these theories. I loved that too. And did you, in any of the interviews you listened to, did you listen to her talk about uh, birth in the 1920s? And I, I should have jotted down the phrase. Um, Do you remember what it's called? Oh, twilight, twilight sleep, the twilight sleep where women, a trigger warning here. This is like pretty intense stuff. But she talks about how Daisy mentions this a couple of times in The Great Gatsby. And I had never really done much digging into this. Mm -hmm. Um, But that women, wealthy women, could have the option of kind of giving birth where they'd be totally unconscious. And so not conscious of the pain and trauma that their body was going through. But the, the pain still existed like they weren't being anesthetized it wasn't like this was Mm pre-epidural um and so then many women would have these like traumatic flashbacks because their body had experienced this pain that their brain had not um integrated and that that's kind of one of the lenses she used to look at daisy's character was this kind of haunted by this this trauma of giving birth in this way and i like that was 
brain blowing to me. Mm-hmm. Like I, I thought that was because I I think that there is a lot in the original Gatsby about Daisy and motherhood and how she is um, kind of distant with Pammy, right? Yeah, distant and apathetic and. And I loved what she did to not just say like, oh, Daisy gets a pass or here's what's going, but like, let's dig into this and what might be going on Mm -hmm. uh, historically with this woman. And I thought that was really brilliant. Yeah. Just the, the threads that Nevo picks up and chooses to feature. Mm -hmm. I love it. Linguistically, thematically, Mm -hmm. in terms Mm -hmm. of character, 100% agree. I, I love that. And, you know, I feel like we're we're going to talk about this book more with our our book club and we don't want to spoil any more of it for those of you who haven't read it yet. So I feel like what you just said about the threads she picks up is a great place to transition us into talking a little bit more generally about adaptation and why this one maybe worked for us and what we've learned about what types of adaptations work for us as readers over the course of this semester. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this. So I think a good place to start is this tour article that I I copied a couple snippets into our outline here, and we'll we'll share the article in show notes. But I um, just really liked this review of the Chosen and the Beautiful, and this particular um, a, there are a couple paragraphs about it as an adaptation, and I'll kind of summarize the first part and I, I want to read the second one in, in entirety, but um, it just, it says that in some ways retellings of the Western canon can feel easier for authors of color to tackle because Western readers already are familiar with them, but in a publishing industry that is 76% white and only 11% of books each year are published by authors of color, there are fewer concerns from the publishers that readers won't quote, get the source material, um, that the world building and the myths won't be too complicated and obscure. So it's like, these are in some ways easier to publish. However, it comes with its own set of challenges when these stories of the Western canon from the white perspective are written for a white audience. Like, how do you make it new and truthful for you as an author of color when you adapt it and retell it. So I I love where the author went with this, saying The Great Gatsby is a story about the American dream, but it's a narrow one focused on whiteness, wealth, and privilege set in the 1920s where people of color are not given their own agency or depth. The act of retelling a story is to challenge it, to peel back the assumptions of the reader and the author. It's a love letter to a book, but also a response. This is how I can do it better. Oh, I love that. And man, she's did both of those things, I think. Yes. And I'm so glad you found this article because I we started this topic this semester kind of asking the question, like, why adaptations sometimes, right? Like, why are some authors choosing to enter the, the stories and novels they're writing through the door of adaptation? And I love, love, love what this article is saying, both in terms of accessibility and who's getting published and what white publishers okay as a really important answer to that question but also this this additional answer of how to 
like the importance of getting to make these stories their own and saying, I can do this even better. And I, I just, I love that. I think that we didn't talk about um, the Manchester Act as an element of of the chosen and the beautiful, but but I Nevo kind of takes Tom Buchanan's racist mm-hmm. uh, rants and makes them an important political and plot point of her story, um, and I think that's a way of saying I can do this better. I'm taking something that you just touched on and showing how it really can impact people. I thought that was very well done. Mm -hmm. So Sarah, I think, and you'll have to say if this is, is true or not, but I feel like in one of the conversations that we were having about adaptations, I don't remember if it was on the main feed or in Patreon, this could have been more in reference to film adaptations, but you talked about how with a retelling or an adaptation, you want the book to stand on its own, like as just a good book. Yeah. I think that this was a really good book. I don't know if I would have enjoyed it as much if I hadn't read The Great Gatsby. So where do you kind of fall on that with The Chosen and the Beautiful? Well, I think that I'm okay if you, and this is, this is, maybe count backwards to, to what stand on its own uh, might mean. But I, I'm i okay if you have to have read the original to really fully get the adaptation or the, the retelling. Um, but what I think is I want to be able to analyze as a reader the text on its own. Like, I don't want to have to read the book and determine whether I like it or not based on a how faithful was this to the original. Like, I don't want to, um, I don't want that to be the marker of whether the book was good or not. So it's not necessarily for me that the book has to stand on its own, but I want it to be asking larger questions than just how does this compare to the original. And to me, this one definitely does that. Although I agree with you that I'm not sure I'm I'm not sure what the reading experience would be like if I didn't know Gatsby. The nice thing about Gatsby is almost everybody's read it if they're yeah. if they've been in an American <laughs> high school classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, when authors are, you know, choosing what they want, what story they want to tell, this one is is ripe. I think that Vo makes an excellent choice in choosing a side character that we don't really get very much information about otherwise. Mm-hmm. I mean, I fully believed everything she had to say about Jordan and put on the page for us because Jordan's so in the background in The Great Gatsby. We don't get a whole lot of of Jordan, but this this felt very true to me. So I do love an adaptation that is sort of told from a different character's perspective. Um, I think something that we have both remarked is that we want a retelling or adaptation to have something to say and not just feel like, I just wrote this because I liked that book or because, um, because it's available in the public domain now and I can, or because it might be, be easier. 
And I do think that Niveau has things to say that feel really relevant for today in The Chosen and the Beautiful. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree. I I think for me, it's really important that an adaptation be doing something either working with or working against or building on the themes of the previous its source material, not just plot. And I, I had brought up the example of the beautiful, beautiful little fools, which was a fun read, a fun Gatsby retelling. But that to me very much felt like she was working with the plot. Like, what if I told the plot through these other characters and that would allow me to do some fun twists and unexpected surprises? That That's fun, but that's not nearly as successful an adaptation to me as somebody who's like, I'm going to take this theme of the American dream and what it means to pass in this world and what it means to be an outsider and go like above and beyond what the source material is to, to both say, there are some things that The Great Gatsby was saying that I want to echo, and there are some things that The Great Gatsby was saying that I want to push back against um, and poke holes in. And I, this is one of the most successful adaptations I've read in terms of extending the themes. That's so well said, and I hope it gives our listeners some language when they're talking about retellings or adaptations, whether it be book to book or book to movie or TV show, I think that that's part of why the uh, adaptation of Station Eleven works so well on screen. It's not a point by point, plot for plot adaptation. It really is delving into the themes of, of the novel and the, the show runner and, scriptwriter and creator of that show just really got the the book well and it stands so well on its own. And yeah, yeah, I agree. Nevo did the same here. And I think that's a great way to articulate why we like one adaptation over, over the other. Sometimes for a beloved book, we do want a beat by beat adaptation. I want the BBC Pride and Prejudice because it feels <laughs> like I'm reading the book while I'm watching it. But if I were going to watch a contemporary version of Pride and Prejudice on screen, and it was totally a retelling, I don't think I want a beat by beat of the plot. I want something fresh and different. And so I love the way you articulated that and gave us the language to use for like, I liked this retelling for these reasons. Yeah, I I found that to be helpful to me because I do think that we can get bogged down in that idea of faithfulness, which is Mm -hmm. something we discussed a lot in our Patreon group. But I I think maybe a light bulb went off in my head while you were just talking that regardless of how we want to define these terms and how the literary world defines these terms, perhaps for me, adaptations— I want to be more faithful and retellings. I want to be more imaginative. Mm. And maybe that's just kind of how I see things. And I I don't, this is, this is just occurring to me. I don't know if that's 100% true um, or how that would break down really in terms of the adaptations and retellings I've liked in the past. But um, I do think there might be something there to how I, how I tend to personally think about that terminology. Hmm. I like that. Still so much to think about, even though we spent a whole semester on this topic. (laughs) 
Yes. Well, I mean, that is what we love about Novel Pairings University, right? We talk about these books, we talk about these topics, and neither the books nor the topics never finish what they have to say. They always keep having more room for discussion. That's what makes these things classics, makes these ideas worth discussing. And I'm, I loved this semester. I'm, I am so glad we decided to focus on adaptation. Me too. And if you are tuning into this and you feel like you missed out on some of our conversations, you didn't. They're still available. You can still sign up for our Patreon community and you can access the recordings of the events that we did. You can check out the bonus episodes. So they're, they are still there. The conversation is still happening. Our Discord group still talks about these things. It is ongoing, so it's not like it's over and you missed it. You can go back and and review and pick up where where you left off with us. So we'll be starting a new semester in in the spring with a, a new theme, um, a new focus. But we have a couple of things going on in between. Then we'll be back in December to share our best books of the year, and then in January um, we'll be. Ha- releasing an episode on Langston Hughes. We're reading some prose and poetry of Langston Hughes with our Patreon community for our January J term. An episode will be available in the main feed about Hughes, but if you want a little bit more, if you want to discuss his work with us, um, January would be a great time to consider joining our, our Patreon community. If you want calendars for all of those things that are happening, subscribe to novelpairings.substack.com. That's a great way to get announcements and event reminders and updates from us. You can also follow us at Novel Pairings Pod on Instagram. And of course, we would love it if you could write a five-star review for us. Take the time to write a couple of words instead of just the rating, and it helps boost novel pairings in the Apple Podcast algorithm so that new people can find our show. We're very excited about how the show is growing and reaching our listeners, and we love to hear from you. So please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can also rate the show on Spotify. So check in your podcast app that you're using right now and see if you can leave us a rating. Thank you so much to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next time, we'll be back to share our favorite books from 2022 in our signature superlative format. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book. (laughs) 